What is up, Bitcoiners? It's your boy CK, and I'm back with Ansel for another episode of Fed Watch. Um, it's been a while. We took a, a week break. We only did two shows in the last four weeks, um, but with the holidays and traveling and all that stuff, kind of gets hard to record shows. But we have a banger set up for you guys today. Um, before we get into it, though, let's talk about our sponsors. Mm-hmm. First is LVL.co. You've heard about them many times. It is a new kind of Bitcoin exchange. It's not like a brokerage account. It is more like a checkings account. So when you get an LVL.co account, you get a FDIC insured checkings account that's right next to a Bitcoin wallet. And uh, you can transfer Bitcoin and USD between those wallets seamlessly without any fees and without any spread. They're not making money on the transfer of USD and BTC. They're making money when you swipe your debit card or when you use other services that they provide, like a normal bank. So they allow you to bank on Bitcoin. They allow you to get paid in Bitcoin. You get paid in USD. That money hits your checking account within LVL.co. And then whatever percentage you want transferred to Bitcoin, boom, automatically transferred to Bitcoin. You can be like Russell Okun today with LVL.co. Make sure to go check them out right now. I am a big fan. I love seeing this new direction of Bitcoin banking and uh, getting people from fiat into Bitcoin. So uh, I like what LVL.co is doing. Next is Blockstacks. You guys, this is a new sponsor and Blockstacks, if you haven't heard of them, they have been building decentralized tech on top of Bitcoin for a very long time. They are launching a brand new sidechain for Bitcoin. It is Stacks. Stacks, again, it used to be called Block Stack. It unlocks a ton of new use cases and functionality for the world's most well-known, most secure, and most important blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain. Without modifying Bitcoin at all, Stacks 2.0 blockchain allows Bitcoin to scale with the Clarity smart contracting language that was designed by Stacks developers and Algorand developers in order to make Bitcoin more scalable and programmable. Developers can now build on the capital security and immutability of Bitcoin and explore a world of Bitcoin-based DeFi and decentralized applications. Proof of transfer or POX is a groundbreaking consensus mechanism that makes it all possible. POX connects the Stacks blockchain to Bitcoin. So that is how you get that Bitcoin native currency on the Stacks blockchain. Um, And it enables mining and staking. So STX holders uh, who are, you know, helping the Stacks blockchain maintain consensus, they actually earn BTC rewards. So you get paid in Bitcoin and the entire ecosystem is denominated in Bitcoin. So it's a blockchain where Bitcoin is money Stacks, apps, and smart contracts on Bitcoin. For more information and to register for their Stacks2 launch event, go to stacks2.com. That's Stacks, S-T-A-C-K-S, followed by the number two, dot com. All right, that's enough from me. Ansel, how's it going? I'm doing great, Christian. Made it through the crazy last couple weeks and um, enjoying the Bitcoin price. And man, we are all set for a crazy 2021. Yeah. I mean, according to 
the past cycles, um, 2021 should be equivalent to 2017 um, or 2013. So um, we are due for some fireworks in 2021. Excited to talk about that, but also reflect on kind of the recent events. Um, Ansel, what's your interpretation of, you know, what happened last Wednesday and then the fallout since? I think I have an unpopular opinion about this. Uh, I don't, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. (laughs) I mean, I think it was completely blown out of proportion. It wasn't super violent. Uh, They were let in and things like that. Uh, Of course, anything is used to jump on the situation by both sides. Uh, I think this period will be studied for generations about how to run a psychological operation on the internet with this QAnon and and all that stuff. So um, I think that Man, it's it's not unprecedented either. If you look back in history in the U.S., um, there's been all sorts of stuff that's happened at the Capitol. I mean, Bill Clinton pardoned a person that bombed the Capitol building. So it's it's not that – you don't have to look that far back to see some equally or more crazy and violent things that have happened at the U.S. Capitol. It's just that this time – it's kind of like on the charts. If you watch Bitcoin, you know, during the good times when it's going up, the bad news just rolls off Bitcoin's back, right? But then at the top, man, the the move has been exhausted and then uh, some bad news hits and it takes a dive. And then people blame that news, that last bit of bad news for the drop. Um, but really it was just the exhaustion of the whole cycle and it was ready for a dip. Uh, I think it's kind of similar here. There's nothing, I, I mean, I watched a bunch of things. I've seen a bunch of videos from the last four to 10 years out there. I was in the military. I've seen bad stuff that goes on around the world. And this was just like a silly excuse for insurrection, in my opinion. I don't want to comment too much on the political stuff, but I I have to say that in terms of, you know, the what happened versus like the gravity of the reaction, like the gravity of reaction is precedent precedent setting, right? Um, and it really shows a massive power grab to me. So I'm just seeing this as like an opportune moment for a power grab. And, you know, now Democrats control everything. Like, it seems like a massive power grab is happening here. And uh, I don't know, that's what's more scary than, you know, anything else. Well, again, I think I have a contrarian opinion on that, too, is that, you know, the the censorship that we suffer today, we don't, we are suffering censorship, and there is censorship everywhere. And it has gotten really bad over the last week. But, uh, you know, just think about the past when you had print media and you were censored by the print media. Uh, There was absolutely no way that you could get your voice heard. So uh, right now, I think we're ultra connected. We're hyper connected. And any little movement of a 5% correction in that hyper connectedness feels like massive censorship. But I think we're the least censored today than we've been pretty much in human history. Uh, so I, I'm <laughs> a long-term bull on all of this. And uh, also, I think that the outsized reaction is kind of evidence that they, they, they're, they're, it's a reaction from a weak position. There was, what, 75 million voters for Trump in this election. And since then, there's been polls about how many percent of uh, Democrats or Republicans thought that there was fishy stuff going on with the election. And it's, it's not a small number. I mean, it's a majority of the country thinks that there was something fishy that went on. And uh, so I think they're kind of, they're reacting from a position of weakness. And I hope that gives people some, maybe puts it in perspective a little bit. I hope, 
Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I think this is almost like a high watermark. Uh, I hope. I guess I could see that, but you know, this is kind of like then the then they fight you stage, right? Of a position of weakness. Um, so the then you fight you they fight you stage, even if it's coming from the low ground, it's going to be painful. Yeah, and I totally get a the arguments uh, against all the censorship and, and how people are thinking it's the end of the world and it's the end of the United States. But for me, I, I would just put it in context of what else has happened in the history of the United States. And this really isn't all that bad. Uh, if you look back on history, it feels really bad because we're in a fourth turning. And I think we'll, we'll start talking about that here in a minute. Yeah. Before we do, do you want to give us a quick market update? the macro side of things like we cover on this show. So gold is slightly down. Uh, There is, if you're thinking that gold is a marker of inflation, you know, we're not seeing gold uh, continuing its all time highs. We're actually seeing a pullback. And I kind of expect to that pullback to continue for uh, maybe even the first half of the year. Uh, The dollar is kind of hitting a low point. If you look back on the charts, uh, over the last, I would say, well, it's the low in 2018. And then there's other lows like in 2012 and 2010. They all kind of happened over a two month time frame. They didn't, there was no wicks. Like on Bitcoin, we're used to these uh, long wicks where we really have this excessive sell off and a bounce right back up. Uh, the dollar seems to bottom in a two month process. And so I think we're kind of about a month into that process and we could see some uh, rebound. You can also see that on the TED spread, which is the LIBOR, the difference between the LIBOR rate, which is uh, the Euro dollar offshore, Euro dollar interest rate and the Fed funds rate uh, that has started creeping back up. And when that goes up, that means that there's stress in the system. So it seems like there's a little bit more stress building uh, in the global financial system. Oil is up. Com- commodities seem to be up. A lot of, a lot of people are talking about a secular commodity bull market. Uh, and I'm, recording a podcast episode on my my normal uh, bitcoin and markets podcast about this this idea of a commodity secular bull market and why i don't think that's exactly happening but we are seeing commodities really make a run right now as well as the stock market at least the us stock market is um pushing all time highs consolidating at the top and continue to go up even though metrics from almost every analyst out there will tell you we are above dot-com type bubble metrics and it's still going up. So uh, who knows what's going to come in 2021. Let's talk about that a little bit, right? There's a lot of narratives around <coughs> why we see store of value assets acting this way. Um, how much of this has to do with the dollars issues, fundamental issues? Uh, store of value assets. Will you, are you talking about like commodities? I guess I'm talking about the stock market in particular, but you can look at real estate. You can, I mean, gold, sure. It's, it had a really nice breakout um, earlier this year and it's kind of like uh, plateauing a little bit here, but generally speaking, you know, people are buying assets. Yeah. Well, I tend to believe that markets are smarter than I am. And that if I think it's this overbought, uh, this crazy of, you know, the most overbought stock market in the history of, of uh, the Dow Jones or whatever it is that I'm probably wrong. Uh, and so there's got to be some fundamental reason behind that. And, and I do, I am bullish on the United States over the next couple decades. And I think I'm, well, I'm positive on the dollar and much, very bearish on other fiat currencies. So I think there's going to be a huge rush of capital into the United States. And one of the easiest ways to get into the United States is to buy 
U.S. stocks. So I think we could be extremely overvalued. We could double from here. Who knows? Uh, but it, there's got to be a fundamental reason behind it. And uh, since I'm not on the inflation bandwagon, I'm more on the capital flight into the United States. That's, that's my thinking. And on the commodity side, it's mainly a production issue. Uh, for example, oil shale production it was cut 20% in the U.S. And even before the pandemic, Saudi and Russia, OPEC, they were cutting production and they've cut since. So there, there's a huge reduction in the supply of oil. Uh, and then oil hit bottom and that, that caught, uh, you know, hit zero basically on the futures market. So that caused a lot of distortions throughout the entire industry. And even more production cuts, uh, Nigeria and Brazil, some of these high cost producers are in danger of, you know, not, they're in danger of shutting wells that they won't be able to turn on for years. So uh, it's not like in the US with shale where it only takes you a couple months to turn a well back on and make it um, more, make it profitable again. In some of these uh, high cost producing places, it, it's a, it's a long, long process to shut down a well and to, open it back up. So we could see uh, production decreases. Even though we have demand decreases, the supply will shrink faster than demand. So that's why prices might go up in the short term. Same with copper. Um, I listened to a recent podcast with Jeff Schneider and Emil Kalinowski. They have a really good podcast. And um, they were talking about copper where the production is going to be cut down close to 3% this year. But th that's a you know an industry where uh, everything produced is used that year. The stock to flow is like one, right? And um, so any slight decrease is going to cause massive ripples down the supply chain. And also in that time, um, for example, China they have increased their imports of copper by five percent year over year twenty uh, twenty twenty from twenty nineteen but their actual use of the metal, you know, their exports, what they've actually been using copper for has dropped up to 20%. So they are just, the inventories are going through the roof. People are starting to hoard commodities. And so we're seeing a large uh, spike in prices, but what's the, the tail end of that? Whatever, what always happens when, when inventories get too large, then demand falls and prices will plummet. So uh, this is just, I think it's a, it's a, uh, rebound part of a deflationary cycle that we're in. That's my opinion. The narrative you're telling here really fits well into the idea that we've been talking a lot about here on FedWatch, which is uh, deflation in terms of like productivity in general. But I would even go as far as saying just like we are seeing markets and the ability to coordinate across time and distance break down because of interference in markets like that's that's like that's the zoom out perspective like things are starting to break down coordination and trade is just not happening and that's why you're seeing you know commodity prices go up as people hoard and production's going down and uh, when you're talking about the gas producers starting to shut down production and how there's like a time aspect and these wells when they shut them down it takes years it takes a massive investment to bring them back up and running it's, it smells to me like Bitcoin has a massive opportunity to solve a big issue for a lot of these producers, as in Bitcoin will take that energy so you don't have to shut down your facility and pay you for it. That could be cheaper for a lot of these countries and a lot of these producers than actually shutting down. And a big reason why, you know, from a FedWatch perspective, we think about macro with the lens of Bitcoin. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think we're there yet, but in some places we can, we can start seeing that. I know like Canada and the U S are starting to do things that are in uh, Russia too, man. They, they have hydropower plants that are putting Bitcoin miners on the side of them. So uh, yeah, th- that's happening. Uh, it's going to be a slow rollout. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it took five to 10 years to get that kind of thinking into people's heads, but yeah, that's definitely a huge positive for Bitcoin security, Bitcoin decentralization and all of that. I mean, just to touch on what you said about the communication breaking down, it's a, it's a an era of deglobalization, right? So ties, trading ties, uh, the the amount of international trade will shrink, I think, over the next couple decades. And so we're entering this this period of decoupling uh, of different markets. Yeah, I mean, and I'm writing about this, but I feel like there's this emergence of two two systems, right? There's the legacy system, which appears to be breaking down, and then there's the emerging Bitcoin system, and we're going to see these systems side by side. I know you've thought about this a lot, and you've thought about you know what the psychology of people transitioning into the Bitcoin system will be like. Yeah, I mean, all the um, high-end stuff that you need to be connected for right uh, anything that has to do with internet software uh, that kind of stuff will we'll, we'll see a maybe even a, more of a globalization in those fields but uh, less globalization from the respect of commodities and uh, major imports and exports in my opinion but w- you never know this <laughs> this could uh, like some uh, Max Kaiser and Stacy Herbert they are uh, really I guess you would say bullish on globalization going forward. They think every other country is going to zoom forward while the U S kind of stagnates with a, a heavy depreciating dollar. But uh, I, I kind of think it's the other way that, that we're going to decouple the dollar is going to be fine. And the other currencies are what are going to get hit hard. Now, how does Bitcoin fit into that? I think, uh, yeah, Bitcoin kind of offers a parallel system. And so uh, yeah, we've talked about that all the time, where green shoots will appear in the Bitcoin economy. Uh, like one of our sponsors here, Blockstack, uh, they are starting whole new things in this Bitcoin economy. And it's just going to be things like that that keep building on itself. And the second, third, fourth layer of things, uh, that is where the real growth is going to come from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's transition to talking about the fourth turning, right? So Uh, Just to kind of give a quick intro, um, the idea is that, you know, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men, and the cycle repeats. Um, And the fourth turning is a transition between weak men make uh, hard times and then hard times make strong uh, strong men. Um, So that's kind of the fourth turning moment is that transition from um, good times and weak people to hard times uh, and a rebuilding of a new system, you know, kind of like we've been talking about Bitcoin is this alternative, this second system. Ansel, do you want to kind of give your commentary on how you use this four turning perspective to uh, understand what's going on right now? Yeah. So in U S centric, but this, this kind of applies to a lot of different places around the world that had this post world war II baby boom. So the fourth turning is kind of the period between this baby boom, uh, giving up power to the millennials, the newer generation. That, that's the time frame we're talking about. And how does that, when does that occur and how does that occur? Uh, that's why people are talking about like 2010 to 2030 being this transition period between these uh, generational cohorts uh, 
in, in almost every country. But um, the, the way I look at it for, I mean, applying it to recent events is that it always feels like the end of the world. The fourth turning is very apocalyptic. You have, uh, you feel like your society is being turned upside down, but really this is just a recurring cycle that we all go through. And towards the end of the fourth turning, when we come out the other side, usually the, the country or uh, the group of people, they're more united and they're more, they return to the center. So in this, this uh, scenario would be like the populist center of the political sphere would be what is dominant. And uh, you can kind of see that, right? Like Trump wasn't necessarily super conservative on most things. Uh, There's some things that he was, but some things he was more center, uh, but he was a populist for sure. And then you have people like Tulsi Gabbard who are uh, very anti-war, but they're also pro-government. So they're, they're in the political system, but they are moderates, right? And so there's this, I think the, the two parties, at least in the United States, uh, they, they have, most people have more in common than they have with uh, the extreme sides of the political debate right now, the Antifas or the hard uh, right-wing QAnon people. So uh, I think over the next few years, maybe it'll take four years or eight years that we will return to the center. And it does feel very bleak right now, but I kind of picture this all just it's all part of the process. And right now I would say Bitcoiners, if you put your head down, you stack your sats, you build, then, you know, in four to eight years, the entire new economy that is built in after the four turning is going to be built on a Bitcoin foundation. And I think that's, that's a pretty optimistic vision. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think Brandon Quidham, for all the listeners out there, check him out on Twitter and on Swan Bitcoin, but his handle is at B Quidham. Uh, and he puts out some fantastic commentary on the fourth turning and does a good job of talking about how Bitcoin is really at the center of this fourth turning and the shift, um, you know, is a perfect opportunity for um, Bitcoin to kind of step in and fill in for where our institutions, you know, are failing us as we're seeing before our eyes. Um, so really uh, encourage you guys to check out um, his work. Um, but kind of zooming in a little bit, Ansel, let's talk a little bit about 2021. Um, obviously, we're at the beginning of the year. Uh, we made it all the way through 2020. Um, I think that there's a lot of silver linings, especially for Bitcoiners in 2020. But um, ultimately, it was a hard year through and through. Um, it was a hard year for freedoms and overt, um, you know, kind of takeovers and in, in action against uh, mass populations. I'm kind of curious, like what 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 are your anticipations for for this year, politically or for Bitcoin? Uh, I would say holistically, talking? holistically, holistically. Um, I think. Oh man, um, it'll probably get a little worse before it gets better, but we're close to the worst. It, it's maybe for the next six months, maybe for the rest of the year, uh, we will slowly get a little bit worse, a little bit darker. But, uh, you know, I just caution people to remember that this isn't the end of the world. This isn't the end of America. This isn't the end of uh, the your life as you've known it. Uh, this is just a step along the way. And, and most likely by the end of the year, we will see glimmers of light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, so that's that's kind of from a large picture what I'm thinking. 
That's very hopeful. And I'm sure uh, part of those glimmers of light will be uh, six-figure Bitcoin prices. Um, <laughs> yeah, we didn't even get into the Bitcoin price yet. Yeah, I mean, let me just talk a little bit about you know what I'm seeing for this year, and then we can talk about Bitcoin price. But uh, really, a theme I'm seeing is is waking up. I think that a lot of people have been complacently in their bubbles. And as the actions that we're enduring and seeing become more and more overt and extreme, you know, more and more people will kind of wake up and we're seeing like the drive to signal and other messaging apps, the fleet off of, you know, Facebook and uh, Twitter from the right. Um, Like that to me looks like waking up. That to me looks like decentralization and decentralizing. I think this year is going to be a huge year for appreciation for decentralizing and owning and running your own hardware. Like I truly feel like the like the fundamentals of Bitcoin and what makes Bitcoin valuable. The world is waking up to that. So um, I definitely think that this is this is a pivotal pivotal year, and the Bitcoin price is just going to be the market's way of communicating that reality. I love that. I think uh, didn't uh, Dorsey is doing something with some open. Uh, type of social media standard. So hopefully that we can see some work in that direction as well. And and just to add on to that, I think, you know, again, we need, at least I think we need that uh, to move towards more localism, you know, know your neighbors, have your support system around you, be, be involved with your local community, your local housing board in your local community, and don't worry so much about what's going on thousands of miles away. So um, I think that's a good example uh, of how we can act in our own sphere of influence. I absolutely love that. And I mean, I think that's a good transition into um, this show and FedWatch. Um, You know, we talk about Bitcoin price. We talk about macro. We talk about what is what is happening from a big picture and we take Bitcoin's reality into account. So if that's something that you like, if this show is a resource, we'd appreciate it if you guys share it, if you guys... um, Shout us out on Twitter, give us reviews, all that good stuff. It really means a lot. And we're trying to kickstart this thing and make sure that people coming into this space get the right information. So um, I definitely feel like we offer a fantastic cocktail of information. And uh, Ansel definitely brings the macro knowledge. You know, one of my favorite analysts. You guys absolutely need to listen to uh, Bitcoin and Markets as well as FedWatch. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, you, you're, you guys are pumping out a ton of content over there. I, I so much... Man, I can only watch about one one thing a day, but I know you guys are pumping out probably three or four items a day. And um, Bitcoin Magazine is, man, they're really stepping up their game. So uh, make sure you guys subscribe to all of the RSS feeds because don't don't some of the shows have their own RSS feeds besides FedWatch? Yeah, every single show has its own RSS feed. Oh, so every I single guess, one now. Yeah, so we got the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, which is the the feed that many of you guys are subscribed to. Um, mm-hmm. That's just going to be for Bitcoin Magazine now. We have FedWatch. We have the Van Wordham Shores NATO, which is um, Aaron Van Wordham and Shores Provost, who is a um, Bitcoin Core contributor. Uh, they get together every single week, and in 20 to 30 minutes, they explain a technical topic. Um, so sometimes it's like a, 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 a timely or it, it works out with the news, and sometimes they're just explaining something. So last week, they did Lightning Basics. This week, they're doing um, Drive Chains. Uh, so really good show. 
uh, we have Bitcoin in Asia. So John Riggins, who's our Asia correspondent, super well uh, connected over in Asia. He has a Bitcoiner from Asia on every single week. Um, and that's a great perspective. You get to realize that people in Asia, they're still Bitcoiners, they're still Bitcoin maximalists. Um, so that's very bullish to see and great insights there. Um, we do meet the taco plebs with Nick Hoffman. So uh, that's a great one. Nick can't mind uh, bringing on taco plebs every single week. Uh, oh, yeah. And then we, yeah, we have FedWatch, of course, and we have a, uh, we're just, we, we just dropped the Bitcoin Tina on Bitcoin um, special as its own exclusive feed. Um, so you can Google oh, really? or you can look up Bitcoin Tina on Bitcoin for fantastic episodes. Um, and we are going to drop a new one tomorrow. Uh, say actually today, I guess, same day that this one drops, uh, but it will be Bitcoin Tina on Bitcoin part five, uh, the hardest trade. So very excited for that one as well. So uh, that was like a minute and a half of Bitcoin Magazine podcast chilling, but uh, we're making so it happen. So the Tina stuff is the Uber Bull, the Uber Bull take, right? It's the this time is different take, but yeah, oh, it's, okay. it'll be a it'll be a great show. It'll, it'll be a great show. Should we talk about price at all, or, or should we just say, save that for next time? I'm glad I, I stacked the that 30k dip. Well, we went so far so fast, right? Uh, we broke the all time high and and then made it to. Uh, 40,000, 42,000 within a matter of like 24 days, I believe it was. So uh, we is like a thousand dollars a day on average. And we were just set for a pullback. Uh, I still think it can come farther back, uh, but that would just be a stack of, you know, buying the dip opportunity. And uh, I, I tried to caution people that it's not different this time, that we're not going to go from 20,000 to, uh, 20, you know, 250,000 in a straight line without significant, you know, 40, 50% retracement. So I think we're just in the midst of the first retracement in Bitcoin in this bull cycle. And this would be a good time to uh, start stacking those sats a little bit extra on these dips. Does yeah, that match no. your take? Matches my take completely. And really just to plug the Bitcoin Tina special again, I think the commentary there is not necessarily about how we get to that big number. It's what happens after we get to that blow off top number and mm. um, how the market reacts to that. Uh, so, um, yeah, make sure to listen to FedWatch. Make sure to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine's podcast all across the board. Uh, make sure to follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner uh, and give me a follow at CK underscore Snarks. Guys, it's been a fun one, and uh, keep an eye out every single week for a fresh FedWatch podcast. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. <laughs>